Well, please turn with me in our Bibles uh, this evening to the book of Leviticus and turning to Leviticus chapter 9. If you're using the church Bibles, you'll find this on page 87, and we're reading the chapter in its entirety. Uh, We have been working through uh, the book of Leviticus in our evenings together, and uh, this evening we come to the ninth chapter. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish for a burnt offering and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses commanded, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him. And he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin he burned up with fire outside the camp. Then he killed the burnt offering and Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar. And they handed the burnt offering to him, piece by piece, and the head, and he burned them on the altar. And he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering like the first one. And he presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering Uh, took a handful of it and burned it on the altar beside the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people, and Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat pieces of the ox and of the ram, the fat tail, and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, They put the fat pieces on the breasts, and he burned the fat pieces on the altar. But the breasts and the right thigh Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord, as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he uh, came down from offering the sin offerings and the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people 
And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Sometimes if you ever uh, go shopping in a large shopping mall, uh, you will find not just that there are many different businesses uh, to shop in, but sometimes as you walk into one of those uh, uh, buildings, you'll notice that there's even a map. Uh, and that map will uh, show you a layout, not only of the, the physical building and the different outlets in that building, but it'll also include oftentimes a reference point. Uh, there will be a star or some kind of uh, circle that tells you not just the layout of the building, but it tells you where you are in that building, which gives you a sense of your bearings. Uh, you know that if you turn left, what kind of shops to expect. And you know if you go straight and then turn right, uh, you will find different shops. Well, as we have been looking at the book of Leviticus uh, together, uh, it's always important that we keep our bearings uh, if we're going to appreciate or understand, really, what Leviticus is all about. Uh, Leviticus uh, is a book that is trying to lead us to an understanding of uh, the Lord and his purposes. Uh, but it's unveiling it uh, uh, in history of what God's dealings have been. When uh, the Lord delivered his people from uh, Egypt, uh, you remember that he brought them to Mount Sinai. And when uh, the Lord brought them to Mount Sinai, the Lord made it clear that he intended to draw near to them, uh, that he would uh, uh, draw close. But the people were warned not to draw near to the mountain, that they were not to touch even the mountain, or they would be uh, destroyed. Uh, the Lord warned them uh, of that uh, encounter. And so what happened at Mount Sinai was something uh, awe-striking. The people were gripped with fear. There was earthquakes, there was lightning, there was fire, uh, there were clouds. All of it was very intimidating. And the people cried out uh, for someone to speak uh, between them and God, uh, for Moses to tell them what God said, but they did not want to be able to be so close uh, to the Lord. That, that encounter was really instructive because it was teaching the people something about the holiness of God, that God is holy, uh, that God is devoted to his own glory, but also it was to teach the people that God is opposed to anything that would corrupt his glory, uh, that nothing that is sinful can be accepted in his uh, presence. And so as one person has said, holiness destroys sin and impurity in the same way that light destroys darkness. And so in the unfolding of God's purposes in history, God rescued a people from Egypt, and then he made it known to them that he purposed to draw near to them. But if we understand who God is as he's revealing himself as a God who is holy and just, a God who will by no means clear the guilty, the question becomes how then can a sinful and an impure people draw near to God. How can we be accepted in his presence? And that's our bearings when we come to Leviticus. How can we draw near? How can we 
ascend the throne of God? How can we come into God's presence? And Leviticus has been outlining different uh, parts of that answer. We've already seen three things being highlighted. You remember the opening uh, of Leviticus highlighted the various offerings. Uh, There were different sacrifices that needed to be made. Different sacrifices that communicated distinct realities. But in general, there was a sense of a need for payment in order to be uh, accepted in God's sight. In order to cover their wrongdoings, their impurities, to be made clean, even as God himself is clean. To be pure, even as God is pure. Leviticus is also highlighting to us the importance of the tabernacle. You remember how the Lord had promised that he would draw near. And then the tabernacle was to be built according to the Lord's instruction. But the third component was the priesthood. The priests were those who had been consecrated to serve on behalf of the people. And it was through the priests that the people would be able to have an access into God's presence. You remember last time we looked at even how the priest in their uniform uh, was communicating Uh, the realities of drawing near before God. They were dressed in a royal robe, signifying that they served the king of heaven. But they were also dressed bearing the names of the tribes of Israel over their heart. They were those who carried and represented them, even in their service of their king. And so the priest was a mediator, one who came between the people and God, one who offered sacrifices in order to make a way in which the people could have fellowship with God. And you remember we highlighted that the priest, when he approached that veil, as he approached the curtain, it was really, it was really returning to Eden. Because on that curtain were the cherubim, the cherubim that marked the entrance to the Garden of Eden. It was a reminder of the barrier of sin. But with the blood of sacrifice... Through the work of a priest, there was this this outworking of overcoming sin and recovering what was lost on account of sin. And so Leviticus has been highlighting there's a need for sacrifice. There is a need for a meeting place. And there is the need for a priest to represent us if we're going to recover what has been lost. Leviticus 9 is teaching us how those three things now come together. We're really looking at the inauguration. We're looking at the beginning of tabernacle worship. We're beginning to see how the people of God can worship this holy God and not be destroyed. How they can enjoy God's favor even while recognizing that they themselves are contaminated by sin. And so this evening we want to look at how because God has drawn near to bless sinners, we are to respond with joy and reverence. We want to think about this chapter in three thoughts. We want to think about the desire of the Lord to draw near, the demonstration of the Lord drawing near, and then the delight in the Lord's uh, drawing near. First, uh, there is the desire of the Lord. It says there in verse 1 of chapter 9, On the eighth day Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. Uh, It mentions there the eighth day. 
uh, you remember at the end of chapter 8 there, one of the, the, uh, the things that was happening was is that the priests were being consecrated for their work. That, that process uh, took a week. It took seven days for the priests to be ceremonially changed from being uh, impure to be made uh, holy unto the Lord, of being consecrated for the Lord's work. And so for seven days, they could not leave the entrance of the tent of meeting. They were there doing the Lord's work, uh, waiting uh, to now be serving as priests. And it says here, on the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and the, the sons of Aaron, highlighting that that period of waiting is over. But it's also signifying more than that. When it says on the eighth day, you can think of it as seven plus one. Uh, a week plus one. But the eighth day is now marking a new beginning. These priests now are priests. A new phase has been established. A new age has dawned. These men now are priests holy unto the Lord. And they can now offer up sacrifices to the Lord. It is marking a new beginning. A new creation we might say in the outworking of God's grace. And uh, so it highlights uh, this by describing it as the eighth day. The eighth day is uh, a new beginning. But as one person, Philip Evison, points out, uh, this language is also one of the uh, uh, a first of a number of pointers in Leviticus uh, to that whole idea of a new creation. Uh, the idea of eight uh, signifying seven plus one, or this idea of something new is beginning. Um, we'll see that even when we come to the New Testament. Uh, for instance, even in John's Gospel, uh, Christians will celebrate on the first day of the week, the resurrection. Uh, Jesus uh, dies and then is raised to newness of life. And we gather on the first day of the week, or we might say seven plus one. On the eighth day, Christians gather for worship. And we are celebrating not just that Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week, but Christians gather on the first day of the week or the eighth day of the week because it's marking the beginning of a new creation. It is marking the fact that resurrection life has been established, that life has conquered over death, that God's grace triumphs over sin. And so Christians are gathering, recognizing what Christ has done, but also celebrating the inbreaking of God's purposes uh, on this world. And so uh, commentators highlight that this is one of the, the, the first of a number of pointers, even in Leviticus, to this whole idea of new creation, uh, even in the, 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 the way things are ordered. John's gospel, for instance, will talk about the first day of the week. But John will also go on to mention, and on the eighth day, they met, they met together again, uh, calling attention to that whole idea of a newness that marks uh, uh, their gatherings. But here it goes on, and it says, on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. There were preparations that were necessary, which included offerings for the priests and offerings for the people. 
You can see the breakdown even in the, the paragraph uh, divisions. In verses 8 through 14, you see the, the offerings for the priests. And then in verses 15 through 21, uh, the offerings for the people. The offerings included a bull, which was the sin offering or the purification offering, a ram, which was that whole burnt offering uh, for the priests. And then there was a lamb, an ox, a ram, and a grain offering for the people. But what stands out about this chapter is not the offerings, but the stated purpose of what those are for. The purpose is uh, highlighted there in verse 4. It says that they were to offer all of these things. And then at the end of verse 4, it says, for, the, for today the Lord will appear to you. Three times in this chapter it's going to emphasize that. The stated aim of what is happening here with the beginning of the tabernacle worship is that God will meet with his people. Uh, uh, and that is the Lord's uh, purpose. Uh, if the people are to meet with their uh, Lord, uh, then they were to have to prepare themselves uh, 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 in worship. And that meant offering uh, sins to make atonement for themselves and for the priests. If the people didn't offer uh, or didn't uh, deal with their sin, it would reveal a failure to grasp the seriousness of sin. If we stop and think to ourselves, what is sin exactly? If you know your shorter catechism, then you know that sin is any want of conformity unto or any transgression of the law of God. And by that, our forefathers simply meant it meant a failure to be what God designed us to be or negatively doing something that God has forbidden. But we can describe sin in a multitude of ways. And Jay Sklar describes sin in a different way. He says sin is a parasite. Sin is a parasite that is seeking to destroy what was good. It is something that is trying to take over a host and to destroy it uh, uh, as an alien uh, um, source. He says, sin is a parasite on God's creation. It is robbing humanity whom he loves of, of the goodness and peace that he intended. God does not oppose sin because he is a cosmic killjoy. He opposes it because he is a loving and holy God. When we see that sin tarnishes what is good, then we will realize and rightly assess that it is something that is serious and needs to be addressed. God opposes sin, not because it is, he is a killjoy, but because sin opposes what is just and good and right. Sin is opposed to God's will. That's why the people have to address sin here. They are going to meet with their God. And sin is something serious because it is a parasite that seeks to destroy God's design. It is something that is opposed to God's will. And so they are to offer up these offerings, even as they prepare to meet with their God. So as they uh, prepare to meet with their God, they are to recognize the problem of sin. But you notice as it says that, uh, as they uh, prepare uh, to meet with their God, uh, they're to contemplate sin itself, not, because, not with the aim of groveling in self-hatred, but because they know that sin stands in the way of something better. 
The reason why they are to face the problem of sin is because they know that sin stands in the way of coming into God's presence. They know that sin is a problem because it is standing as a barrier from them experiencing and enjoying something better. The source of all love, the source of all goodness, the source of all justice and righteousness. Sin is getting in the way of that. Sin is destroying something that is precious. And so they have to realize that and address it accordingly. And so it tells us about the offerings that were uh, offered up. It mentions many of the offerings in this chapter, and it describes them by comparing them with the earlier offerings that we looked at, the sin offering and the burnt offering, uh, the grain offering. Uh, but because this is the beginning of the tabernacle worship, it is unique. Uh, the blood uh, does not penetrate far uh, into uh, the tabernacle. Rather, the blood only makes it to the altar. Uh, normally, the blood from the bull was first taken into the tabernacle and then sprinkled in front of the veil. And then the rest was poured out at the base of the bronze altar. But on this occasion, the blood goes no further than the altar of bronze. So there's something of a consecration that is happening here. There's something uh, unique uh, in the inauguration worship uh, that is taking place. And the same goes for the people's offering. Uh, the blood uh, does not go into the holy place, uh, but rather uh, it is offered at the altar of bronze. But all of this is being done according to the Lord's command. So why is all of this happening? All these offerings are being described. And if we keep our bearings, we realize that what is being communicated here is being told to them in verse 4, because the Lord has purposed to appear before you. The tabernacle, the priest, the sacrifices, what is it all for? It is God's purpose to draw near to sinners. It's God's purpose of having fellowship with those who have rebelled against him. Those who have been re removed from the garden are finding a way in which they can still have access uh, before this holy and just God. So there's the desire of the Lord to appear. But there's also the demonstration of the Lord's appearance. It goes on and it tells us how the Lord made his presence known uh, to the people. Uh, it highlights there in verse 22 uh, that uh, after Aaron had uh, uh, done these offerings, then in verse 22, Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from the offering of the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. Uh, we don't know whether Aaron used uh, what came to be known as the Arianic blessing. The Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But what we do know is, is that when Aaron communicated this blessing, the source of that blessing is coming from God. In other words, the Lord has purpose to draw near to his people. But the purpose of the Lord drawing near is to bless them. His purpose is for their embetterment. It is for their enrichment. It is to show his favor towards them. It is not to, uh, to punish them. It is his purpose to, uh, to bless them uh, uh, ultimately. And so when Aaron came down from the altar, it suggests that everything had been done from presenting the offerings to communicating the Lord's blessing in their sight. And then it says, and when they came out, 
they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. It may have been that the people saw a fire descend like lightning uh, from a cloud uh, covering uh, the tent. But what is clear is that when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. The glory of the Lord is connected with the Lord's presence. Uh, the Lord was demonstrating his presence to them in a very visible uh, way, uh, a powerful way, uh, communicating his desire to be close. And so the people came away not just knowing that there's a God, but the God who is is the God who draws near, which really becomes a way of understanding all of God's revelation. God intends to draw near. The God who is is not the God of the deist who sets things in motions and is too polite to interact with his creation. The God who is, is a God who is involved and invested in interacting with his creation and who purposes to draw near to his people. And what we see here in Leviticus, the tabernacle, is something that is developed throughout the scriptures. You see it even more fully when you come to the prophets. You will find that the prophet Malachi will talk, for instance, that there is a coming day when the Lord himself will come to the temple. The Lord will come, and it will be a day of a refiner's fire. Who can stand on that day? It will be a day of purification, and it will be a day in which the glory of the Lord will appear. What Malachi was describing was ultimately the coming of the Lord Jesus. When the Lord Jesus came into this world, it was the purpose of God fulfilled. God drawing near to purify his people and to show the glory of God. That God is a God who draws near in order to bless. That the son of God who took on flesh and was born of a woman did so in order to bring blessings to sinners. We see this theme woven even further when you come to the day of Pentecost. The glory of the Lord's presence was further revealed when the spirit was manifested and we have the appearance of the tongues of fire over the heads of the disciples. You remember how Peter preached on that day. He preached explaining that the glory of the Lord was revealed in Jesus and how many were convicted not only of their sins, but they were also convicted of God's works. The glory of the Lord was revealed because people were convicted of their sin and of God's righteousness and of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he writes, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders and unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters in and he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all the secrets of his heart and are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare God is really among you. What was Paul getting at? Paul's point is, is that when the church comes together and the word of God is proclaimed, the spirit brings conviction of sin that leads people to an understanding, not only of their sin, but recognizing that Christ is the one who can purify them from their sins. The result is, is that the word of God leads a person to worship, recognizing that God is in 
this place. You may be sitting here knowing uh, uh, that you can't blame everything on your life, on your childhood experience. You may be sitting here knowing that there is something contaminated about you. There's something wired wrong. There are things that come out in your life uh, that you know rationally I ought not to have done. I can't blame everything on my background. I can't blame everything on my environment. But we can come to recognize our sin. But the question is, is have we come to face our sins and look to the one who can overcome our sins? Our sins are a barrier that stand between us and something better. That the tabernacle was meant to show us there is something better than living for idolatry. There is something better than simply living for the corruption of our human hearts. The truth is, is that there is a God who overcomes sin. And he's made that known. His blessing is made known in Jesus Christ. So whether we're looking at the New Testament or the Old Testament... We see God's purpose is the same. I am a God who will dwell in your midst. That God is a God who has overcome the problem of sin. Here in the Old Testament, the people saw that. The tabernacle, the priest, the offerings, they communicate that God is able to overcome our problems. But they were pointing forward to our great high priest. They were pointing forward to the Lamb of God. They were pointing forward to Emmanuel who brings us God and his blessings. And so we see here not only the desire of the Lord to dwell with sinners, but we see the demonstration of the Lord's presence communicated through Aaron's pronouncement and then from the fire that comes from heaven. The people see God's presence. But there's also the delight of the people as well. In verse 24, uh, it goes on and it says, And the fire came out from before them, and uh, the Lord consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. It tells us that they shouted. The word there is used to describe how the Lord's people should respond with joy when he comes to dwell among them. The prophet Zephaniah says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why rejoice? Because God has come. And because God is good. Because the God who has made his presence known has come to bring his favor and his blessing. That's what Aaron was communicating. The Lord's favor be upon you. There is peace with this God. There is one who conquers sin. And you can know his blessing in and through faith in his promises. The Lord has drawn near through the tabernacle, through the sacrifices, through the priests. And so the people are rejoicing in the one who is king and knowing that the king is absolute goodness. They shouted and rejoiced. The second aspect of their delight was expressed in falling on their faces. Bowing in many cultures is still a way of showing honor uh, it is a way of showing, uh, displaying great honor. And here the people of Israel express their high esteem of the Lord by falling on their faces, uh, celebrating that the God who is is a God who cares for them. Biblical worship will show both of those things. When we truly worship God, it will involve joy and it will involve honor. 
It'll show reverence and it'll express delight. The God who is, is a God who blesses sinners. The God who is, is a God whom we can find our security in. And so we see both of these things being accented. Is this how we think of worship? Here in the inaugural public worship of the people of God at the tabernacle, we see both of those things accented. Do you expect to meet God? That's what Paul talked about. When people come together and they hear the word of God, they don't just hear the words of men. They don't just hear one person's opinion. They hear about God and his righteousness. They hear about God's purposes being traced out. They hear their own souls being analyzed and explained to them in such a way that they cannot resist concluding that that is an account of the human nature. They understand the works of God being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And they come to a conclusion that not only is God great, but God has come amongst us. And as a result, they respond by falling on their faces and saying, God is in this place. We should have that attitude when we take up the word of God. Because it is God speaking to us. Because God comes to meet with us and to show us his glory. God is a God who draws near. Leviticus 9 is about the inauguration of public worship. But it ends with the glory of the Lord being revealed. Ultimately, the glory of the Lord has been revealed in the coming of the Son of God and through the work of the Spirit. God is not far off. He is present, and therefore we can rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about uh, the worship of the Old Covenant period, we pray, Lord, that in all its symbolism, in all its ceremonies, we pray that we would not miss uh, the fact and how it teaches us that our God is a God who draws near, that our God is a God who draws near to bless, and our God is a God who draws near, ultimately, uh, to bring about our praise, our joy, uh, and our response of devotion. Lord, may we be people who not only hear these things, but may we be people who respond to your revelation. May we glory in the coming of our God, who comes to purify sinners, and the one who comes to reveal your glory. So go before us in Jesus' name. Amen.